How long will the battery last? Will I be able to get to where I need to go and back? The question I have is, will I need to replace the battery before I'm ready to get a new car? I'm Tara Jean Stevens, and this is Road to Electric, an original podcast powered by Mazda. On this show, we're on a journey to separate fact from fiction when it comes to electric vehicles. Today, we're talking about the most crucial component of EVs, the battery. And more importantly, how much range do you really need? We talk to people who drive electric cars, one of Canada's foremost consumer advocates for EVs, plus the guy who wrote the book on the surprising history of electric vehicles, answering questions you didn't even know you had, like what does a 1980s camcorder have to do with today's electric car market? Range anxiety. This is a term that's thrown around a lot when people talk about EVs. It refers to a fear that your electric car battery just won't provide enough power to get you where you need to go. My typical drive is 56 kilometers. Some days a little higher, and the highest day is maybe 100 to 125 kilometers in a day. Meet Pino Mastroianni. He bought his first EV more than a decade ago, and he's still driving it for his daily commute in Essex County, Ontario. I usually go three to six weeks before I even use a drop of gasoline. My name is Jen Leesk, and I live in North Vancouver, British Columbia. And I bought my first plug-in electric hybrid in 2018. In a typical day, I probably drive somewhere between 10 and 15 kilometers. But it could be as low as 5 or as high as 30. Like so many people these days, Jen works remotely. She has no daily commute, but even still, she wasn't sure her battery range would be enough. Our range is about 28 kilometers because it's a plug-in gas hybrid. And when we first got it, I thought that that wouldn't be enough. It seemed very low. But the truth is, if we want to go up the road to Whistler or down the road to Richmond, we can. And the neat thing about it is that when the battery is out, the gas turns on and it recharges the battery. So then you can go back on battery power. So our gas use is always very low. We bought this car as our secondary car because we thought that we wouldn't be able to do all the things we wanted to do. But actually, it's become our primary car because we can easily do all the things that we need to do. I probably go two months or more without ever having to put gas in the car because you just don't use it most of the time. So the anecdotal evidence, the anecdata, if you will, is strong. Jen and Pino aren't worried about running out of battery power and getting stranded somewhere. That's because they drive the right EVs to suit their needs. Pino knows his daily usage. Jen knows that sometimes her family will take longer road trips. These stories are in line with the results from a recent study from the Canadian Automobile Association by PlugShare Research. After talking to more than 16,000 EV owners, they found that once people had been driving their EVs for a few weeks, their concerns about range and battery life dropped significantly. But I also want to hear directly from an expert. Kara Clareman is one of the top voices in this country when it comes to EVs. She founded the nonprofit Plug and Drive more than a decade ago to educate Canadians about electric vehicles and make it easier for people to make the switch. We started off by asking Kara what she thinks about so-called range anxiety. 
Honestly, range anxiety is something that gas car drivers tend to have, and then new EV drivers have it for the first week or two of ownership of their new car, and then it goes away. And so it tends to be something we imagine will be a problem. And then once we get into it, we realize actually it's totally fine. I would say I saw that firsthand over the weekend. I went to a ball tournament a couple hours outside of town and the coach had just bought a brand new EV vehicle and he left it at home and came with someone else on the road trip because he was worried about the charge. And I remember thinking, I should tell him to listen to my new podcast. Right. I mean, the first time you do a trip that is unusual, that's not destination you're used to going to and you're not sure where the charging is, it's understandable to have concerns. And then once you've done it once or twice, most of the time that just goes away. So how much battery power and range does an average Canadian driver think they need compared to what we actually need? Because I think that's that might be what this boils down to. That's right. Actually, StatsCan collects data on how far we drive. And the last one that I saw said that the average Canadian drives about 50 kilometers per day. That's about 80% of us. And so for most of us, this issue of range isn't really an issue at all. Most of us are not driving that far in a given day. So, So most of us could actually make do with quite a low range electric vehicle, except... Many of us do love to take the odd road trip. And it's the road trip that tends to preoccupy people in terms of, you know, destinations and range. And so it's not actually the daily driving. So we try to tell folks, hey, think about what you do 99% of the time, not what you do 1% of the time. And if that one trip a year or two trips a year gives you a lot of heartburn, then take a different car. Just don't do it but you still get all the benefits of EV driving for, you know, most of your driving. So we're talking a lot about battery life on this episode, but beyond range, beyond distance, what do we know about how long these batteries actually last? Well, the oldest EV is about 12 years old. And so in terms of battery life, we now have a pretty good idea of how those cars are doing. And it looks pretty good. The, the studies of the oldest EVs on the road show those batteries are still going strong, lasting well. In fact, most studies out there will show that the battery is likely to outlast the car body. And so this issue of having to replace a battery is unlikely to happen to most drivers. The reality is that we don't really know what it means at 15 years or 20 years, like we don't we don't have that information yet. And since you first started Plug and Drive back in 2011, I'm really curious about what you're going to say about this. How have you seen the public's attitude towards EVs change over these decades? You know, the interest is exploding. It's still a low percentage of people that are actually making the switch, but the awareness has really improved. In the first couple of years, most people that we met when we would do public events had never, maybe never heard of an EV, didn't know what EV stood for, never seen one for sure. We're sort of out of those days, but I would say, you know, not as far along as I might have hoped at this point, but every month or two we see improvements. 
Where we're struggling now is there's very low supply of vehicles. So now the interest is there. And unfortunately, the vehicles aren't there to meet the demand. So it'll be great as some of these new plants start manufacturing EVs that there'll be more supply. And I think I think we're going to see a huge surge in, in actual adoption. And will that be the tipping point? I mean, once demand can be satisfied, are we all going to get on board? I mean, everyone in our neighborhood maybe could be driving an EV and you'll feel left out. I mean, is that are we going to get to that point in the next few years? I think we're already at the tipping point in some parts of Canada. So, for example, like Canada, it's not all the same all across the country. In British Columbia, for example, they're already at 20% adoption, new sales. And in Quebec, getting close to that. And so in those two provinces, I would say you're probably at the tipping point. I would say in the rest of the country, we still have work to do. You know, there's some parts of the country we're down in just a couple of percent. So we're still, we're not there yet. So at Plug and Drive, you offer, you know, curious drivers like me and my listeners an opportunity to actually explore and even test drive EV vehicles. With that experience, what's the biggest source of resistance or anxiety that you hear from people around adopting an EV as their primary vehicle? Sure. Well, a lot of the folks who are looking at EVs are two-car families. So a lot of the adoption right now is still often a second car. Not always, but often. And I think what we've seen, like we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of visitors from every walk of life. And the common thread, basically two concerns, is price. Number one is that the EVs are a bit more expensive. And then number two is range. And so those are still the top two concerns that people have. I mean, the great news is the prices have come down and continue to come down, and we still do have incentives. So that's good. That helps. Where we have to help people a little bit more is in the total cost of ownership. So when I say that, I mean, you know, the sticker price of the EV might still be five to $10,000 more than the equivalent gas car. But as you own it over the years, you're saving, right? Because electricity is about one-fifth, depending on which province, one-fifth to one-sixth or one-seventh the price of gas, and maintenance is much less as well. So you save a lot every year that you own it. And so we have to show people, hey, you're going to pay now, but you're going to save later. And in the end, you will be ahead. So So that's part of it. And then the range issue still persists. But as I mentioned, you know, it does tend to go away once people adopt the car, but we have to get people over it enough to be willing to to adopt the car. So we're worried about the price. We're concerned about range anxiety. Those are all valid concerns that have concrete answers. But what about the misconceptions? What about the things that we're filling our head with that maybe are totally not true? What are you hearing? Well, we do have a lot of concerns about the battery, that they're going to have to replace a battery. Uh, You read one news report that somebody had to replace their battery and it was $5,000 or $8,000 or whatever it was. So those stories do loom large for people. And our experience is that that is not happening. It's very rare. And by the way, most of the automakers are putting an eight-year warranty on their battery. 
in general, if you have a problem in your battery, you're going to have it when you still have the warranty. And so for the most part, this is a non-issue, but this is a belief that people have. And then the second thing about batteries, I would say, is people are concerned about what's going to happen to the battery eventually. You know, where is it going to go? Where is it going to go? <laughs> so actually, this is a great Canadian story. There's a ton of research going on in the areas of reuse and recycling of batteries. So first of all, these batteries are so valuable you never have to worry that these things are going to end up filling up landfill sites. They are not. They still have juice left in them, even when they're no good for a car anymore. And so what's happening is they will be refurbished and used for backup storage and um, other uses. And then they will be recycled. And there's a number of Canadian companies that are quite prominent in this uh, battery recycling space. Uh, and the automakers will either partner with them or some of the automakers will actually take the batteries back and do it themselves. Kara Clareman is the founder and president of Plug and Drive, a nonprofit that educates consumers about electric vehicles. I have to admit that for someone like me who commutes every day, range anxiety is real. I think we need a real shift in thinking. So how do we make this shift? History has some lessons. We may think of electric vehicles as this new technology, but battery-powered cars have been around for more than 125 years. And there's a lot to learn from this history that we can apply to the adoption of electric vehicles today. So we called up Tom Standage. He's an editor at The Economist, but more importantly for us, he recently wrote a book called A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car and What Comes Next. So he's the perfect person to tell us how gas-powered cars initially beat out electric vehicles and what is different now. If you go back to the 1890s and you look at the, uh, the market for cars in the US, it's really interesting because you've basically got a three-way fight between steam-powered vehicles, electric vehicles, and internal combustion engine vehicles. And they're selling roughly equal quantities uh, by the late 1890s. And in fact, in 1897, the electric cars are outselling the other cars. So... Might things have gone a different way? I think that's what we ask when we look at this. Could the electric car have won? And it was pretty obvious that steam-powered cars weren't going to win. They were the old technology. They were very big and very heavy. And the main problem with them was that if you wanted to go out in a steam-powered car, you had to kind of get the boiler going several hours beforehand. So they were very, very inconvenient. Electric cars were great. You jump in them, they go straight away, they're quiet, they're clean, they're reliable. But the battery was the big problem. The best cars had a range of maybe 70 miles but you know there weren't very many places to plug them in most houses didn't have electricity at this point so that was a vulnerability and then the internal combustion engine car had a problem of its own which was that the engines were just really not very reliable and so you kind of had to be your own mechanic and you had to be prepared to deal with the car breaking down and there wasn't a network of filling stations for you to fill up you could buy the fuel at essentially hardware stores so the, each of these technologies had their pros and cons and that's why i think it's an interesting period because we kind of look at it and say well is there a world where electric cars won I read in your book that 
1897 anyway, more than half of the vehicles on the road were electric. But by 1900, this is the one I really wanted to get your insight in, most of the electric vehicles were being sold to women. Why, Tom? Well, there are a number of reasons for this. Um, The main one, I think, was that kind of electric cars were seen as feminine. They were quiet. You didn't need to be strong and manly to turn the cranking handle to start them. You didn't need to be your own mechanic to keep them running. And women were assumed to be terrible mechanics, whereas men were obviously natural mechanics. There's, you know, obviously a massive amount of gender stereotyping going on here. Another thing about an electric car is because you weren't fixing it all the time, you wouldn't get oil all over your frock. So that's very important. And then there's another, I think, much more subtle reason why men might have preferred, if they were buying a car for their wife's use, to buy her an electric car. And that's that basically she wouldn't be able to get very far in it. She might be able to go into town or go to the opera with her friends, but she would not be able to run away in it because there would be nowhere to recharge it. So I think it's really interesting that Henry Ford, who we think of as the great pioneer of democratising access to the car, buys his wife an electric car made by another manufacturer. So I think there's quite a big kind of element of coercion or control going on here as well. But yeah, ultimately, it was becoming clear by the early years of the 1900s that internal combustion engine cars were going to win. They were becoming more reliable. The gas was becoming more widely available. And so electric cars kind of got pushed into this niche where they were deemed, you know, inferior, but good enough for girls. Um, so you see that reflected in the um, in the advertising at the time, like electric cars, so easy to drive, even a woman can do it, you know, things like that. It's really shocking if you look at it now. Tom Standage in with the fun facts. So you've mentioned it there, and we all know it's true. Eventually, the electric car does get overtaken by the combustion engine. What were the factors that that made that shift? Well, it's two things. It was the fact that the electric cars didn't really get any better. Um, The batteries were lead-acid batteries, and lead-acid batteries are big and heavy, and they take a long time to charge, and it was difficult. There wasn't charging infrastructure. As I said, you know, very few houses had electricity at this point and the electricity they did have was not suitable for charging batteries really quickly there weren't really very many public charging points i mean that you could do it you could go to a a hardware store or something and say can i plug in my car but um, you know basically there wasn't any infrastructure so the electric car continued to have all of the problems that it had had in the late 1890s whereas the internal combustion engine car was starting to shed some of the problems it had had. It was becoming more reliable. The availability of uh, filling stations was going up. Um, and that became a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. The more people bought them, the more demand there was for gas. You get the the sort of invention of the standalone gas station. Uh, you know, it becomes, it's an, originally a, a sort of offshoot of the convenience store, but then it becomes its own thing. So internal combustion engines just become more reliable You've got the advantage of range because you've got the ability to fill up. And then, of course, you get the Model T. And what the Model T does is by introducing mass production and the moving production line, it makes cars dramatically cheaper and much more accessible to people. And at that point, there really is no turning back. So during that time, Tom, does, you know, electric batteries and electric vehicles, do they have any sort of, you know, peaks and rises where people were trying to still make it happen? Well, interestingly, Ford and Edison got together um, around 1920 and said 
maybe we should have another go at an affordable electric car. And this was after the success of the Model T. And, you know, they were considered the two greatest innovators uh, in that field, in their respective fields at the time. Edison was the, you know, the genius who had come up with all these electrical technologies. And Ford had, you know, completely revolutionized car making. So you'd have thought that if anyone in the world could figure out how to make a decent electric car at that period, it would be them. And they failed. And largely, we look back at it now, they tried various different battery chemistries. The problem has always been the battery chemistry and the fact that the the lead acid chemistry is very simple and very reliable, but it doesn't give you a lot of capacity per unit weight. So you need a really, really big heavy car if it's going to have a range of more than 100 miles. So that's a big problem. And then the other thing is that even if they'd succeeded, those electric cars would have had to have been charged using the electricity infrastructure of the day. And that electricity infrastructure of the day uh, and this is something that's kind of, it matters to us today in retrospect, but it would have still been burning oil. And so a, lo- a lot of concern in the 1920s was that, uh, was that you know, basically the world was going to run out of oil. This is a, this is a concern that has, has sort of gone away and come back many times in the past century. But one of the worries was that the car industry itself was much too dependent on the oil industry continuing to deliver oil. That would still have been true with electric cars because you basically have just burnt the oil in power stations in order to, to charge the cars. So what we also see in this time is that people are looking at things like biofuels and whether you can make... Uh, fuel from crops. And GM did a big study on this in the 1920s. And they very quickly came to the pretty obvious conclusion that given the volume of of cars, even in use in America at the time, you would pretty much have to use all the cropland in America to make fuel, and then you wouldn't have any food. So that was a big problem as well. So the electric car fails because the the battery chemistry is still rubbish, and also because ultimately it would still be dependent on fossil fuels. And the biofuel approach fails because it's impractical at that kind of scale. And so we end up with the internal combustion engine still going along the road, in fact, picking up speed um, and making us all more dependent on cars and more dependent on oil. And yet here we are talking about electric vehicles. So at some point, the electric batteries do become viable. What happened there? What changed? Well, the big change comes in the 1970s, and weirdly, it begins at Exxon. It begins at an oil company, and um, there's a researcher there who is, you know, most oil companies have divisions that are sort of looking beyond oil, and they're thinking, well, we can't go on doing this forever, so what are we going to switch to? And to some extent, you know, they're doing this to look good for window dressing, right? But what starts to happen in the 1970s is that researchers start to look at new battery chemistries based on lithium. And the thing, you know, if you remember the periodic table from your chemistry lesson at school, uh, you've got all the metals, and you need a metal in a battery for, you know, various electrical reasons. And, um, and so what's the lightest metal you could use and the lightest metal you could possibly use is lithium and so people start to uh, investigate lithium batteries and the big problem with them is that lithium is an extremely reactive metal um, and it catches fire very easily particularly with the early battery designs the way they worked you get this kind of runaway growth of um, of sort of spiky crystals inside the battery and that would pierce the battery and then it would leak and then it would catch fire and uh, I actually spoke to the researcher who, who was doing all of this at Exxon in the 1970s and he said, yeah, the big problem is that you really can't have fires if you work for an oil company. Um, they're, they're particularly worried about, about that. And so they shut that project down. But the seed had been planted and other researchers then started working on lithium batteries in the 70s and the 80s. 
What happened in the in the late 1980s is that Sony figured out how to make a lithium battery to power a camcorder. And you know, camcorders used to have you know these big chunky things, uh, and they would have big chunky batteries. And uh, the way to make camcorders much smaller and lighter was to use this very expensive, very innovative new battery technology. And that really got the market for lithium batteries going. And then they started to be used in laptops. And there were a few incidents, you know, you may remember in the 1990s where people's laptop batteries caught fire because again, this lithium you know it's uh, these lithium batteries are they do have these problems with sort of thermal runaway and if they're damaged in any way they they tend to misbehave and that really was what got the market going the use of portable electronic devices first laptops and then later smartphones meant that the demand for lithium batteries went up and up and as it goes up then more people make them and figure out how to make them more cheaply uh, and that paved the way for the use of lithium batteries in electric cars And that's the technology that is powering this current moment of driving electric, camcorders. Who knew? Tom Standage is the author of A Brief History of Motion. As Tom demonstrated, the batteries that power electric vehicles have come a very long way. And battery technology is only getting better and safer. As Kara Claremon pointed out, it's unlikely that a battery will even have to be replaced within the lifetime of a car. And if it does, there are good options for recycling in place. Although it might require a bit of a shift in how you think about your car, both the studies and the stories show that once a person adopts an EV as a primary vehicle, their concerns about battery life kind of disappear. That's all stuff I'm going to take back to the dinner table next time my kids ask me about when we're getting an EV. When are we getting an EV, mom? I'm getting to it. I'm, I'm educating myself. Give me some time, please. I'm Tara Jean Stevens, and you've been listening to Road to Electric, an original podcast powered by Mazda. Next time on the show, are they worth it? We dive into a cost-benefit analysis of electric vehicles. Find and follow us in your favorite podcasting apps so you don't miss it. Thanks for listening. The thoughts, opinions, and views expressed in this podcast are solely that of the guests and do not represent the thoughts, opinions, and views of Mazda Canada. The material and information presented in this podcast is for general information purposes only.